We begin this evening as we begin to enter into the 19th night of the month of Ramadan, today being the 18th day, that in a few moments, by the time that the Adana Maghrib will begin, we'll be entering into the 19th night of this month of Ramadan. And it's a night that, you know, traditionally we should have been able to celebrate it, being the layout, one of the Layali al-Qadr, one of the nights of qadr one of the nights which is greater than 1,000 months. So at one level, this should have been a night of celebration, of, of in, you know, enjoying the blessings that Allah has given to us in this blessed month. However, unfortunately, in the year 40 after the Hijrah, uh, man was attacked on this night, on the morning of the 19th day of the month of Ramadan, a man who was the brother of Rasulullah, who was the cousin of the Prophet, who was the son-in-law of Rasulullah. He was a man actually who was not only all of these qualities that we refer to him as, but he was actually nafs of Rasul. He was the soul of Rasulullah. And because of his attack that he faced on the 19th day of the month of Ramadan in Masjid al-Kufa, as he began to lead the prayers in the community, that this now has become a night of tragedy, a night of sorrow, a night for us as the Shias of Ali alayhi salam to grieve and lament the tragedy of what happened on that early morning in Masjid al-Kufa. And so tonight as we begin this fortnight part, fortnight discussion rather, on the shahadat of Amir al-Mu'mineen, Imam Ali alayhi salam, I begin by offering my condolences to each and every one of us who are here tonight to grieve and remember this great loss. And also to our awaited Imam and Savior, Imam al-Hujjah, ajalallahu ta'ala farjahu sharif that I'm sure he, wherever he is tonight, he is also joining in the morning ceremonies, grieving and lamenting over the tragedy of Masjid Akufa. And for these four nights that I'm with you in this commemoration, I want to look at a topic which I have chosen called Imam Ali alayhi salam, the multi-dimensional man. I want to try and explore various aspects of the life of Amir al-Mu'mineen. And when I say that he's a multidimensional person, what I mean is that he is not just a warrior, for example. He's not just a politician or a statesman. He's not just a husband. He's not just a father. He's not just one who connects to Allah through the du'as and the supplications. But rather he's multidimensional. And in every aspect of his life, and these, for these nights we'll I'll look at maybe three or four aspects, one of them tonight. But in all of the aspects of the life of Amir al-Mu'mineen, we'll see that not only did he enter into that area, but he was perfect in that area. He was the epitome of that particular aspect and dimension of his life. You know, when you and I look at ourselves first and foremost, or we look at the world around us, you know, if for example a person is an engineer, then they're going to be only an engineer. They're, they're not going to be a medical doctor at the same time. Or it's very rare that somebody could do that. If somebody is a religious scholar like a mujtahid or a marja or something lower than that, chances are they may have expertise in other areas, but you won't find somebody, let's say, who's a cardiologist full-time and a marja taklid full-time. They can either be one or the other. And even in the world today, if you look at the political world and governments and leaders that we have today in the world, you'll see that a person may be a millionaire or a billionaire. They may be you know, the richest person in their country. They may have made it in the wealth uh, aspect of life. But they lack 
qualifications, they lack credentials in other aspects of human life. So they might be good with money, but they're not so good in talking to people, in dealing with maybe, you know, um, interpersonal relationships. But when we look at Amir al-Mu'mineen salam, and obviously we have to do our own homework and study his life, we see that every life or area, every area of life that he touched, he was perfect in that area. He was perfect when it came to communion with Allah. Like we just have to read Dua Kumail that we read every Thursday night and see the beauty with how Amir al-Mu'mineen speaks to Allah. And it's to the level where, although you and I refer to the fourth Imam as Zainul Abideen, as the ornament of the worshippers, but we have hadith that tell us that when the fourth Imam, when he would engage in ibadat and worship, and the fifth Imam, who was a little young boy, would sit beside his father and watch the fourth Imam pray to Allah, there would come a time when the fourth Imam would stop his du'as, he would open up a bag that he had hidden, he would open up some papers in that bag, and he would begin to read the papers, and he would begin to cry. And the fifth Imam would ask his father, the fourth Imam, that, oh my father, why are you crying? And he would say that, I look at my ibadah, my worship. Again, this is Zainul Abideen. And he would say, I read these papers that speak about the ibadah of Amir al-Mu'mineen, and I'm ashamed of the level of worship that I do. So Amir al-Mu'mineen was the, ex, you know, the, the par excellence when it came to worship. We know his prowess on the battlefield from the days of the Battle of Badr, where he was supporting the religion all the way until his own khilafat and the wars he had to fight. And eventually, obviously, we, we look at every aspect, we will see, as I have said, that he is a multidimensional man. And in every area of life that he excelled, nobody could ever come close, even the other imams that came after him. Although we love and respect all of the Imams of Ahlul Bayt but the other 11 Imams were always quick to tell us that Amir al-Mu'mineen, he has a unique distinction with Allah. That title itself is unique to him, and the qualities which he possesses are unique to him, and none other of the Imams have it to his magnification. Salu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Allahumma salli ala the verse that I began with is from chapter number 2, Surah Al-Baqarah, verse number 207. And it will just give us a brief outline of who Amir al-Mu'mineen is. There are obviously multiple ayat of the Qur'an revealed about him, about his family. But in this one verse that I want to begin with, he, Allah says, وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يَشْرِ نَفْسَهُ بْتِغَاءَ مَرْضَاتِ اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ رَعُوفٌ بِالْإِبَادِ Allah says, out of people, there is one of them, there is an individual who sells his soul, who basically puts his life on the line, seeking the pleasure of Allah, the maradat of Allah. And Allah says that he is kind, Allah is kind to his servants. This, brothers and sisters, is one of the verses revealed about Amir al-Mu'mineen. And specifically, it came down about his trying to save the life of Rasulullah on the event of the Hijrah, of the migration. Now it's a lengthy story, I don't want to go into it because it will detract me from my theme for tonight. But just this one verse is an introduction, an indication of the level of love that Allah has to Amir al-Mu'mineen. That he sees an act where the Imam is sleeping in the bed of the Messenger of Allah, as the Prophet is getting ready to go to 
the city of Medina. And that he's giving up his life by putting his own life in jeopardy. That Allah reveals this verse to Rasulullah and tells him that there is an individual that will give up his life for you, Ya Rasulullah. And that is your brother and your successor, Ali ibn Abi Talib salawatullahi wa salamuhu alayhi. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. In that light, I want to begin this series by looking at just one aspect tonight of the life, the multidimensional life of Amir al-Mu'mineen. And that is the family life. Because first and foremost, before he was a warrior on the battlefield, before he gave us Dua Kumail, before he gave us the Dua of As-Sabah, before he gave all of these other aspects and all the accolades that he has, he was a family man. We know that eventually after the Hijrah happened from Mecca to Medina, he ends up marrying the daughter of Rasulullah Fatima al-Zahra And then obviously from that comes the children of that family. And so I want to begin tonight by looking at the family life of Imam Ali. What kind of a role model is he? What are his dimensions of being a family man? And hopefully we can take from some of the points tonight and we can implement those in our lives to make ourselves better people and leaders of our families. Now, before I go to the topic, we have to understand what the definition of a family is. A family is traditionally defined as a societal system which is comprised of a number of people. And these people could either be, re be related by birth, they could be related by marriage, or they could have some other form of a relationship that they have entered into this family. And they live together as a, as, as a family unit, and they have a multi-level relationship within them. So at the level of a man, he is a husband to a woman, but he may also be a father to children. He may also be a brother if he has siblings living with him. And a mother as well, she would be a wife to the husband, she would be a mother to the children, she could be a sister to other people, maybe siblings living in the home. So there is a multi-level relationship that exists within a family. Now we know that the Quran specifically has a very unique definition of what a family is. And you know, we live in a society today where roles are changing, definitions are changing, even the definition of a family has changed you know, in, in Canada. So when we talk about a family, we mean a husband and a wife, a man and a woman who are married together. And if Allah blesses them with children, then that becomes a part of that family structure. Now what is the reason, like why would Allah put a system in place that a man and a woman who, for many people who have never met one another, you know, many maybe people in this room, you married a woman who you never knew, you had never seen her before, never talked to her, maybe she lived on the other side of the world. Why did Allah put together a, a system where two complete strangers would somehow meet one another, get married in this thing called a marriage, create children, and then that cycle would continue? Well, one of the things that we see in Islam is that the whole process of marriage, of family life, is reproduction and also production. Reproduction meaning biologically to create new children for the next generation and that would obviously continue until Allah deems that that would be a process that will end and that process will eventually end. But also it's the production. What I mean by production, it means to produce 
the next generation who will be socially adept individuals to work within the society, to fulfill the goals of, and objectives of a religion, to move the society forward, to move the community forward, to move basically this entire train that Allah has set into motion from Adam and Hawa salam, and bring it to fulfillment and culmination at the end of this world. And so this mechanism that Allah put into place of the family structure, it's also, when we look at the Qur'an, it's also meant to give us mental and physical ease and tranquility. And so when you look in the Qur'an, for example, in chapter number 30, Surah Al-Rum, one of the chapters that we will recite on the Knights of Qadr, one of the three surahs that's recommended on the 23rd night, we know that there is a verse where Allah says, وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ of the signs of Allah is that that He has created for you from amongst yourselves, from humanity, your spouse. And why did Allah put that? He says, So that as a man and a woman, as a husband and a wife, they may be, bring about a sense of sukoon, of tranquility, of comfort, of ease with one another. And then he says he put love and compassion between the man and the woman. And obviously that is the beginning of the relationship. And then from there it matures and it develops. And the man and the woman move that love and respect for one another forward in life. And this is where we get to the point of looking at how Amir al-Mu'mineen, how the man whose death anniversary we begin to mark tonight, how he was this multidimensional man, that when it came to the family life, when it came to his relationship, whether it was with his wife, Lady Zahra salam, or the children that would come later on, whether it be the two Imams, Imam Hassan and Hussein salam, or Lady Zainab and Umm al-Kuthum salam, that he was the perfect exemplar of a man within the house, not only as the husband, but as a father, as a role model for his children. And this is one of the challenges that I personally see when I go and visit communities and speak to people, is that there is a, a vacuum that I've seen in many parts of our community where you have a lot of men or males who are, who are living in the society, but they're not necessarily men, right? Not biologically, I mean, but at the level of a responsibility. Because there's a difference between being a male in terms, in, in terms of genetics and being a man and fulfilling their responsibilities, or even on the opposite side of being a woman genetically, or being a woman in terms of fulfilling your responsibilities. And unfortunately, we have, you know, living in this contemporary era, wherever we may live, in the secular societies where God and religion is taken out of the picture, we tend to look to the, you know, the different isms and ideologies that come out of this, the societies we live in. And we try to use those to shape what we should be as men or women. But really, if we wanted to go back to the, bas the basics and see what does it mean to be a man or a woman, we need to go back to the life of Ali and Fatima, alayhum <laughs> salatu now we know that when they got married, life was not easy. The Muslims had just moved in the, you know, in the, in the early years uh, prior to their marriage from Mecca to Medina. So they had nothing to start out with. They had very little in terms of material possessions. 
And yet, when the wedding, when the marriage proposal came from Amir al-Mu'mineen to marry Lady Zahra salam, this was basically an instant acceptance. There was no second thought from Lady Fatima's point of view. The proposal was brought, she accepted, and the life of that couple began. But one of the things that ended up happening early on in the marriage, is, and I want to get to this point, is that Rasulullah determined that everybody in the society should have their role to play. Just like today, everybody has a role to play at home. The husband does certain things, the wife does certain things, the children have certain responsibilities. And what Rasulullah did is that one day he was in the house, Amir al-Mu'mineen was there, Lady Zahra alayhi were both there. And he took a stick, according to one of the narrations, and he drew a line in the sand. He was at the front door of the house. He took the stick, he drew a, a line in the sand, and he told the new couple, he says that this line is the demarcation line. Whatever is on that side of the line, O Zahra, that's your responsibility, meaning the housework. And he told Amir al-Mu'mineen, what's on this side of the line, meaning the front door and outside, he told Imam Ali that that is your responsibility to take care of. Meaning that you as the man of the home, as the household, your job is to go out, to earn your money, to take care of your family, to provide their needs. Now that doesn't mean that Amir al-Mu'mineen didn't take care of the family life. Actually, it's quite the contrary. He not only was helping Rasulullah in the mission, fighting wars when the time was there, he worked in the fields, he was a farmer, he used to do all of the work outside. But we have multiple traditions that tell us when he came home, A, he would leave all his problems outside of the door. He didn't bring his problems that happened at work into the family. He didn't want to trouble Lady Fatima with all of the, you know, the, the mental stress he had from the hard day's work. But at the same time, we're told that he would sweep the home. He would help her with the cooking. He would take care of the children so that she could take care of the other things in the house. And a beautiful statement comes to us from Lady Zahra salam when the Prophet made this demarcation, when he told her that you should take care of the inside of the house and its, and its responsibilities, and Amin al-Mu'mineen would do the outside affairs. She says, and this is a very, very beautiful statement, she says, فَلَا يَعْلَمُ مَا دَاخَلَنِي مِنَ السُّرُورِ إِلَّا اللَّهِ She says that no one other than Allah knows the level of happiness that came into me when I heard the statement. When she, when in the continuation of the hadith, it says, بِإِكْفَاءِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ تَحَمُّلِي رِقَابِ الرِّجَالِ She says that the happiness that came into me when Rasulullah told me that I did not have to do the job that men have to do, that I could stay home, raise my children, take care of the, the affairs in the house. She said, that brought me extreme joy that only Allah knows how much happiness that brought. Now, you might think, well, that's very antiquated. That's a you know, 1950s way of thinking that woman stays home, man goes to work, man does the job, and he comes home. And I'm, I don't want to say, I don't want to make it sound that I'm promoting that kind of an ideology. Actually, we need women professionals within our community. We need women who are religious scholars. Unfortunately, we lack that in Canada. We only have a handful of women who have studied Islam officially in the seminary and who are scholars for the women of their community. 
We need women who are doctors, especially in the areas that women have specific needs in. We have a lot of areas where women can contribute to the society. And if we as a community here in London or anywhere in the world, if we are actively and sincerely thinking that we need to pave the road for the return of our 12th Imam, then we have to realize that we as a community need to prepare our women, the men, the children, in those areas that the 12th Imam will need support and assistance in. So yes, for a time frame, a woman needs to be a mother. She should be at home taking care of the children. You know, this child shouldn't be going to a daycare from the, you know, a week after delivery happens. Obviously, there are exceptions to this rule. I don't want to say that no woman should go to work, generally speaking, but there are exceptions and obviously those women have to fulfill their responsibility. But my point is, is that if we want to raise a generation that are working to be the leaders of the next era, and that they're going to be followers of the 12th Imam to begin to make the inroads to bring the 12th Imam's advent closer, then we have to realize that everybody has to have a role within the family. And we see this on many different fronts, right? That this happiness that Lady Zahra had, alayhi salam, Maybe today we can see it being manifest in the Me Too movement, where women are being you know, attacked in the workplace. And it's not their fault that they're in the workplace, it's the fault of the men that they can't control themselves. That women should not have to go through that level of, whatever level of abuse that they're facing. But the point is, is that Amir al-Mu'mineen, through Rasulullah, he had this demarcation, he ensured that the mother of the children was at home taking care. But even when the need came, she was a scholar. She taught the women of Medina, just like Lady Zainab salam, the daughter would teach the women of Kufa. But when the time came that she was there to be a mother for the children, and Imam Ali was a man, her husband, the father, taking care of his responsibilities as the father of the family. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. The second point, and I'll conclude with this um, because of the time constraints for tonight, is an aspect of Amir al-Mu'mineen that we see, which is the love that he gave in the family. Right? Love is something which is very unique, because if you were to ask somebody, what is the definition of love? I don't think even the philosophers have a definition of what love is. They will tell us how you can display love and affection, you know, you buy some roses, you take your spouse out for dinner, let's say, that's a show of love, that's a show of your affection for them. But what is the definition of love is still something which is not fully known in the human condition. But what we do see is that in the life of Amir al-Mu'mineen, he showed to his wife, he showed to his children, he showed to actually the entire community, the level of care and affection and love that he had. And scholars show us, they tell us that love is like water for a plant. If you have a plant at home, it'll come with a little piece of paper or a card, it'll say how much sunlight the tree, that plant needs, how much water the plant needs, how much fertilizer you have to give to it. And you and I know that if you have a, a house plant and you overwater that plant, you can kill it. Right? Too much water can kill a plant. Too much of anything good even can kill it, can destroy that thing. And love is no exception. Too much love can sometimes 
kill at a, at a spiritual level a human being. But we also have to realize that that love has to be balanced. And when it's not balanced, then we risk the, 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 the danger of bringing forth a next generation that is going to be devoid of these qualities and characteristics. Many times I've seen that a father is physically abusive to his wife and the children are present, seeing the physical abuse, hearing the verbal abuse. And these same children then when they're 19, 20, 25, they've said to us, I don't want to get married because I see how my father treated my mother and A, I don't want to face that same wrath if I get married. And B, I don't want to do the same thing to my children if I was to get married, that I would do the same things that my father had done or my mother had done. So love has to be very um, balanced. It has to be you know, nurtured in a certain way. And it has to be obviously built upon the teachings of Islam. Again, never going to extremes in any of these. How did Amir al-Mu'mineen show his love? Right. We have few hadith, and I'll just mention one of them, that we're told in the hadith that when Amir al-Mu'mineen, again, and he was a busy man, he had a very busy life outside of the house, but the hadith tells us, he says, at any time I looked at the face of my wife, at the face of Fatima, السلام, he says, all of my grief and my misery would be wiped away from my mind. He brought that level, or she rather brought that level of comfort to him. That he just had to look at her. They just had to sit and talk to one another and just be in the company of one another. And he says all of his grief and sorrows and misery and stress would be wiped away. So he's showing us that love that, that, love that they had was one that it was not just a physical, but it was at, at, at the level of the spiritual where it removed all of the difficulties. Again, so when we, when we say that Amir al-Mu'mineen was this multi-dimensional man, that he knew how to show the level of love and affection to his family. One more hadith and we'll conclude with this for tonight. And this is a story that happens at the time of Rasulullah. That one day Amir al-Mu'mineen is with the Prophet, they're walking in the streets of Medina. And there is another man, one of the companions of the Prophet, who has two young boys, two young children. And the, the Imam and the Prophet are, are watching this man, he's got his two young children with him. And the man goes and gives a hug and a kiss to one of his sons, but he doesn't hug and kiss the other one. Now for most people, this would just be a very trivial thing. You know, you, you just see this event and you just pass by and you wouldn't think much about it. But when this happened, Amir al-Mu'mineen and the Prophet stopped in their tracks. And the Prophet said to this man, he looked at the man and he said to the man, he says that you have two boys, two children. These are your, both your children. He says, why did you not act with justice and fairness? You kissed one of them. You showed affection and love to one of them, but you didn't show affection to the other one. Something very simple that we might just, again, we'll just pass by it. We won't think twice about it. But again, we see the level where the Prophet and the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, especially Amir al-Mu'mineen, were very particular about these issues because I'm sure it would have an impact, a psychological impact on that child. You see this even in the story of Nabi Yaqub and Prophet Yusuf and his, and, and his brothers. There's a level of, uh, there's an amount of jealousy in that story that the brothers have. Not that Nabi Yaqub did anything wrong, no. But there is a level of jealousy amongst the brethren there. 
And so even here, Rasulullah was showing us that love has to be balanced amongst the family, among, amongst the children as well. I'll end with this, that we have to be careful that we don't confuse love with just giving things to children. You know, sometimes parents, especially now in this era, right, we equate love with buying stuff for our children. Right? When we love them more, we buy them the new iPhone when it comes out. When we love them more, we buy them the new video game system when it comes out. When we love them more, we think we have to spend more on them. Rather than spending more time on them and more resources to train them, many parents think that let's buy them something. Let's buy them this, let's buy them that. Let's buy them their love. Let's buy them whatever they want and then they'll love us more. That actually is a fallacy. From, this, from the societal point of view, from the secular point of view, it's, it's, it's an er erroneous way to go. And even from a religious perspective, that is something that has never been encouraged within our tradition. Love should never be equated with buying stuff for somebody, for, with materialism. But unfortunately, we live in an era where it's all about materialism. It's about what you have. It's about what everybody has. What kind of a car, what kind of a home, what kind of a cell phone, what kind of a television, how big is your television, how many video games do you have for your console. And Islam has made it clear, and in Amir al-Mu'mineen has made it clear that that is not the way to go. Let me end with one last hadith before I conclude for tonight. Where Amir al-Mu'mineen mentions, he says that when Allah wishes good for a servant, when he wants khair for his servant, Imam Ali says that Allah inspires that person to be moderate in his spending. Doesn't just go and waste his money and buy everything for his family because he's got the money in his hand. No, when Allah, he says, wants khair for his servant, Allah inspires that individual to be moderate in their spending and to have good fiscal management, to spend their money wisely. And whenever Allah wants to keep away a servant from his goodness, Allah severs that, that you don't have that fiscal management, you don't have that moderation in your spending. And so Amir al-Mu'mineen shows us that him being a man, a multidimensional, that he first and foremost, he took care of his family. He realized his responsibility in the home, outside of the home. He realized the value of his wife. He realized the value and worth of his children. And he realized that whatever he had to do in terms of fulfilling the obligations that Allah has upon him, that he was able to do that. And obviously he did that not only in a vacuum, it wasn't for him himself, but rather he did it for you and I to see that this is the life of Amir al-Mu'mineen, that this is the life of the commander of the faithful, that this is the life of a man who gave everything that he had to the point where even he gave his own life for the sake of this religion. And tonight, as we begin this first night of the tragedy of the martyrdom of Amir al-Mu'mineen, let me take us back to the Masjid al-Kufa on the 19th of Ramadan when Amir al-Mu'mineen was struck on the head with that sword.